Hey, everybody, before we get started, we have a live marketing workshop coming up April 5th, 6th, and 7th. Sunday, April 5th, you fly in. We have a big dessert that night where you get to meet all the other business leaders who are going to be in your workshop. Then Monday morning, we start the process of teaching you about story and how to clarify your message. Tuesday afternoon, you actually have a clear brand script. You have seven areas of messaging. You have specific words that you use and can repeat over and over that will grow your business. If you struggle with talking about your business in such a way people listen, the workshop is coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee, April 5, 6, and 7. The second half of Tuesday gets even better. We actually take those words and we put them into a sales funnel on paper that you can then hand to a designer or to your marketing department and they can create for you, specifically designed to make all of your money back tenfold. That is, whatever you paid for the workshop and the flight and the hotel, we have designed this workshop so you leave with something that will make a 10x return on your investment. Find me any other workshop or conference that does that. It works. It's worked for thousands and thousands of businesses. It will work for you. If you want to register for the StoryBrand Live Marketing Workshop, go to storybrand.com and register today. Go to storybrand.com. Now, on with the podcast. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. Hey, can you just say that with a little, uh, just a little more enthusiasm? I felt like, no, it, yeah, because I was kind of up, I was kind of upbeat, and then you kind of. Well, I don't want to come no. across as too cheesy, so I said it kind of exactly where I wanted it. to No, be. you're not going to come off so, as cheesy. We just need you to just say no, it. it you just say it I the say right it way, the same way every time, and it's what people expect. I, so you didn't exactly, say it. that's not how you normally yes, say it. It is you exactly how I'm I say it. I'm telling you right now, no, that I, is not how you normally it, say. It. And you are the worst. You are the absolute worst at this. And I can't. I am done. Good. I'll take it myself. What we just illustrated (laughs) (laughs) was how conflict can get out of hand. (laughs) JJ, guess what today's show's about? Um, Conflict. (laughs) (laughs) Because our guest is Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, who's written a book called Optimal Outcomes. And it's all about conflict negotiation. And how to get to optimal outcomes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I would suppose. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so so we had a conversation about conflict. And and honestly, there's conflict everywhere you go. uh, And it's probably never going to go away. Yeah. She actually has some fascinating thoughts on how to deal with it. And it's it's more than just... In fact, JJ. Yeah. You have a conflict with somebody. Okay. What is the first thing you do? Are you saying what's the first thing I do when I approach them or what's the first thing when I realize I have conflict? First thing when you realize you have when conflict. I realize I have, have conflict. I try to step back and go what's the root? what's really causing this? Like am I at JJ, about else, you what? are right. Am I? Ding, 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 ding. Optimal outcome. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Optimal outcome for 500. Yeah. Yeah, you got that right. I'm mad about something they did that has nothing to do with what they actually did. Yeah. And it goes a little bit deeper. I, that wouldn't have been my method. That is that is what the doctor recommends. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I would have said, you go to them, you tell them why they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, listen, if you want to hear Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler set me straight. Yeah. <laughs> stay I do. tuned. Boy, do I. <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned. She goes in when people, when the conflict is going nowhere. She doesn't go in when the conflict starts. It's a stalemate. After months yeah. and months of stalemate, that's when she's brought in. Yeah. And uh, she's she's brilliant, and uh, she's got some great thoughts on it that I think can help us all the way through. And one of the last thoughts is here's what you do when you're triggered 
Yeah. So we should have known that. Yeah. Because we yeah. got triggered earlier. We I don't did. know if you noticed. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I hit the ceiling. Big trigger there. Yeah. <laughs> Mainly because you didn't do the greeting right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, everybody. Here's the author of Optimal Outcomes, Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler. Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me, Don. All right. Anybody who writes a book about conflict, conflict negotiation, how to deal with conflict, I got to ask, what's the backstory? What got you so interested in conflict and uh, how to get out of it or how to use it? Because you don't always want to get out of it, right? I mean, that's part of the the optimal outcomes idea in the book. Well, we'll talk about that, (laughs) (laughs) about what is an optimal outcome. But to answer your question, you know, my interest in conflict started at a very young age because I grew up in a family of screamers and door slammers. Gotcha. And I learned how to deal with it on my own. Um, And I also had a grandmother on one side of my family who I now call the conflict whisperer, Grandma Florence. And she, just by the sound of her voice and even just by her very presence, was able to calm down the screaming and the fighting that would go on in my family. So I learned both how to deal with it on my own and also I had a great role model. And then, of course, I went on to study conflict. Uh, My research in graduate school at Columbia was funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And I've been doing research for the last decade. What was Homeland Security's interest in your research? I mean, you know, any organization would be interested in knowing how to deal with conflict. But what specifically what specific angle did they have on it? My research was on specifically the emotion of humiliation Hmm. and the role that humiliation plays in exacerbating long-term conflict. And this was, I was studying this in 2002, right after the 9-11 attacks and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security had just been founded. And so they, uh, the Social and Behavioral Sciences Division of the Department of Homeland Security had an interest in understanding how, when we humiliate people halfway around the world or they humiliate us, what's likely to happen? Okay, I've got to know what's likely to happen. I mean, that that's a huge thing because when you're talking about, you know, conflict negotiation between countries, there's a lot of humiliation happening and it depends on who the leader is. But I mean, what is the ramifications of humiliation? Well, as you can imagine, what my research found, not shocking, when people feel humiliated, particularly when they feel humiliated about a social identity characteristic like race, nationality, religion, gender, um, they are more likely to be aggressive against other people. Yeah, they feel threatened for sure. Yeah, exactly. Gosh. Well, we could get into that all day, but I want to go a different direction because in our workplaces, we're probably not humiliating each other. All that. Uh, well, hopefully we're not humiliating each other. <laughs> Depends on where you work. Yeah. I would imagine since you wrote the book and even since your dissertation, you've probably been brought into organizations to help them with conflict. And I know that you can't divulge what some of that was, but can you give us some pictures of this is what situations look like? You know, Are you in there with the lawyers? you know, negotiating some of this stuff or helping people understand it. Do you get called as a mediator when there's conflict happening? Yes, absolutely. The beauty of my work is that I often come in before lawyers need to come into the picture to help prevent situations from getting to that point. And when I get called in as a as what I would call a mediator, we often don't call it mediation. So I call it, you know, facilitating three-way conversations. So there's three people in the room, me and two others who are 
who need to work together and are having trouble doing that. So they need to work together to help the business move forward. Neither one of them wants to leave the organization and I help them have the conversation. So be able to say the things that need to be said and also hear the things that need that they need to hear, but have had trouble hearing. You know, that's a lot of the work that I do. Jennifer, you have an example in the book. You've got a CEO of a software company and a sales executive at that company. They have disagreed about some something very important to both of them and haven't talked in months. They call you in. And where do you start that conversation? What, what happens next? Right. So the first place to start is not with a conversation. I think that's one of the most important points of my work is that so often we assume when we're stuck in conflict that we must have to work it out with the other person and with that most obvious other person who we have been in a conflict with. And the first step is to know that's not the first step or it's not going to necessarily lead you to an outcome that you're going to be happy about. So what I recommend is as a first step, just take a step back. So with the folks that you just mentioned who I'm working with, the first step was to say to the CEO, take a moment, take a pause, and let's just look at what is the, how would you describe the dynamic that's already been happening here? And in the book, I describe four conflict habits. Those are, we blame other people. Mm -hmm. We blame ourselves and shame ourselves. We avoid other people to the point where we shut down in the face of recurring conflict, or somewhat counterintuitively, we relentlessly collaborate, even when other people are clearly unwilling to cooperate with us. And each of these habits gets locked in a pattern with the other person or other people or other groups' conflict habit. So in the example that we're talking about, the CEO and his head of sales were locked in a blame, blame pattern. They were both responding the same way. Exactly. So that's a very common conflict pattern. There are five very common of the most common conflict patterns that I write in the book. Another one is um, relentlessly collaborate with someone who's shut down. They're not interested in collaborating with you or blame shut down, right? One person is blaming the other, the other one shut down or blame shame. One person's blaming, the other person's stewing in their own shame. So you're, you go in, the first thing you want to do is find out which pattern each person is using. If there's two people, you want to find out. Their habits that form the pattern together, right? And there's actually an online, a free quiz online that people can take to diagnose their own conflict habit. Um, it's at optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment. Do they need to become self-aware? Do they need to understand what they're doing? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Self-awareness really is the name of the game here. It's the first first practice that helps. And, you know, that can be scary for many of us. We don't want to look at ourselves in the mirror because it's so much easier to just point our fingers at other people and say how wrong and bad and horrible they are. But we give away our power when we do that, right? We think about it. If you're pointing your finger and saying, she's greedy, which is exactly what the CEO was doing in this situation. She's greedy. I need to lower her compensation. It's way out of whack with what the market rates are. And she's so greedy. She's refusing to do it. What's wrong with her? He has zero power. He wants to change her and he can't. Right. She's unwilling to budge and he needs her in this organization. And the way he gets his power back is to look at himself and see what is he doing to contribute to making the situation what it is. And again, that's not always easy or fun, but it gives you a lot more power to put a break 
to break free from that conflict pattern. So once you see that, well, the other person may be blaming me, but I'm actually, <laughs> I'm contributing here. I'm blaming them. So what could it look like for me to pause and ask myself, what would doing something different look like, right? It's like you almost you could do anything else except the thing that you've been doing because the thing that you've been doing is what's gotten you stuck. Yeah, it's not working. Exactly. So the first step is to look at what are the conflict habits involved and what's the pattern that that's created and ask yourself to just notice that. The next practice is called mapping it out. Yeah, I noticed that you've got eight of them. We're not going to be able to get through them all here. But you actually, once you, I mean, I would imagine that the very first negotiation, getting them to be self-aware, to understand their patterns, you kind of have two people in a Western bar with their guns pointed at each other. And one person is saying, look, the second I lower my gun, I'm going to get shot here. I would imagine that does, that's not a quick turnaround where, where people are willing to say, well, maybe I, I can be self-aware, maybe something uh, that I did caused this because I would feel like I'm going to lose, I'm about to lose the argument if I give in an inch. I wouldn't necessarily agree with what you just said. No, I mean, I, just, I, I would say that's how it feels. It can feel that way. And and the part that of what you said that I do agree with is that typically the reason we get stuck in long-term conflicts, in recurring conflicts, is that there's multiple reasons. It's, comple- it's a much more complex situation than we give it credit for. Mm-hmm. So sure, it's absolutely true that if it's taken, you know, let's say, you know, a hundred factors that have caused the situation, it may take a hundred little steps, one after the other, to get out. And that's why I talk about it as design your pattern-breaking path. And that's an entire chapter in the book is about how to design a pattern-breaking path. Because it's not just one pattern-breaking action that's going to get you out. It's a set of pattern-breaking actions that's going to get you out and free. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler in just a moment. We have a free resource for you at skyrocketyourprofit.com, skyrocketyourprofit.com. If you feel like your company should be growing quicker, everybody else's company is growing except for yours, there are probably a few reasons. One of them is you're probably talking about your problems and not your customers' problems. That's one reason. Next, you're also using too much copy. That is, you're talking too much Then you don't have a clear offer. People don't exactly know what you sell. You haven't packaged it in such a way that they know if I spend this much money, I will get this in return. Also, number four, you haven't given customers a path. You've got to give customers a clear path that they can follow to do business with you. And then finally, you're actually focusing too much on yourself. Similar to the first, the first video that is, you're actually focusing too much on yourself. If you want me to elaborate on those five ideas We have done so for thousands of companies, and they've made changes, and those changes have worked to grow their company. So if you want to grow quicker, understand the five ideas I just gave you and watch a video on each at skyrocketyourprofit.com. That's skyrocketyourprofit.com. Okay, so once we, we, we become aware of our own habits and patterns, and I'm actually thinking of the last conflict that I had to interact with. I'm I'm a guy who's always looking for win-win, and you actually say, "Don't do that." Well, I only say, "Don't do that relentlessly." If right. it's not working for you, stop doing that. If it's working for you, fabulous. When I've actually interacted with people who are not win-win, they are zero-sum, and I've noticed that when I'm in conflict with somebody 
who really cannot accept any responsibility or own anything, I mirror that. I actually go, okay, well, I'm not going to give an inch if you're not going to give an inch, which, of course, exacerbates the conflict. Otherwise, it feels like I'm just going to lose everything because this guy's not going to stop until I lose. How would self-awareness help in that situation, I guess? Well, it sounds like you have some self-awareness about the fact that you're reciprocating. You know, when, when someone does it one way, you're likely to collaborate. If they do it another way, you're likely not to. So from there, we would need to begin mapping out the uh, conflict and understanding it in more depth? Yeah. I mean, mapping the conflict always helps when you're in a complex conflict. So I will also say this methodology is not designed for one-off negotiations. Hmm. This methodology is only designed for situations where you are stuck in a long-term conflict. So typically in deep relationship with someone else or multiple people or multiple groups, nations who have been trying and trying and trying to either resolve the conflict or settle it in some way, and they haven't been able to. So this is like an advanced methodology in a way, if, if that helps you to think about it in that way. It does, and it's hopeful. What is the process of actually mapping out the the complications and the nuances of the conflict with greater complexity. You talk about that as step number two in the book. And again, there's eight. We will not get through all of them. But what does that look like? What does step two look like? So typically, we think about conflict situations as between two people or, you know, it's a very black and white situation. It's me and you, right? Or CEO and head of sales. But usually, like we've been talking about, the conflict is much more complex, And that's why we're stuck. If it were simple, we would have gotten out of it a long time ago using our win-win methodologies that we've learned over the last 40 years. But those haven't worked, and that's why we're stuck. So in that case, what helps is to take a step back and put down on your map. You start out just by putting the most obvious players on the map, but then my challenge to you is this. Add as many people, background influencing factors, any factors that you can imagine might have either influenced the situation to make it what it is today and or are influenced by the situation. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people within the span of less than five minutes of creating a map Mm. like this have these light bulb moments go off where they're like, oh, I never thought about it before, but this person has been involved in this way. And now I could see that, you know, instead of my trying to bang my head up against a wall, talking to the person that I've been trying to, and I'm getting nowhere, I could just reach out to this other person and maybe that would be helpful. Yeah. Or, you know, there's just so many possibilities once we do the mapping. So you also want to think about mapping, not only in terms of enlarging the number of people, but in terms of the scope of time. So when I was working with the CEO that we've been talking about, I asked him to put his family on the map and how he grew up and how his father and his brother had influenced his thinking about entrepreneurship and risk-taking and financial security. And also, I asked him to think about the family that his head of sales had come from and what influences she had. It turned out he knew because they were very close friends that she had grown up in a very poor family. She was very concerned about money from a very young age. They ran out of heat as a young child. And he knew these things, but it, you know, they, they didn't occur to him until he created the map that maybe how she grew up had something to do with how stubborn and obstinate she was being in their conversations or their screaming matches with each other. So it didn't take away for him that he was upset about how she had been treating him, but Help it, him understand why he was triggered. Did he do that in front of her, or was that a private? Uh, no, no. This is something you do on your own. 
And by the way, I will say, you know, there are some practices in the book that are about what you can do in the moment when you feel like a deer in headlights and you are stuck and you are triggered with other people. But a lot of the practices are about what you can do beforehand, right? right, In the quiet moments. And the reason for that is that when you're stuck in long-term conflict, trust me, you've got a lot of time (laughs) to think, right? What you've mostly probably been doing is ruminating and going over and over and over again in circles, you know, with the thoughts that are not so helpful. So instead, this whole, all of these practices are designed to help you think about things in in a different way, in a more constructive way, um, in a complete kind of turning the tables, turning everything on its head to help you think um, and expand uh, how you could approach the situation. Before we finish, I want to hear some of the things that we can do if we get triggered. But I, I, I don't want to end the interview without going to number three, leverage your emotions as an effective change maker. A lot of us would probably think in, a, in conflict, we're going we're gonna to feel anger, we're going to feel resentment, we're going to feel like we're losing power. Those are all negative emotions that we need to squash down. It sounds like you're saying, rethink that. Let's do something else with these emotions. What do you mean when you say leverage your emotions as an effective change maker? So what I advise people to do with our emotions, and trust me, I you know, myself have my whole life because of how I grew up probably have struggled yeah. with how to deal with my own anger. Hmm. Um, so I get it. Here's a series of things that I recommend. Number one, acknowledge what you're feeling. So if anyone's seen the movie Inside Out, right? It's about about these five characters. And that's based on a lot of research um, by a renowned psychologist, Dr. Paul Ekman, who found that these are five universal emotions, fear, anger, sadness, disgust, and joy. And of course, there are all all kinds of variations, you know, hundreds and thousands of variations within those five. But if 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 it's hard for you to acknowledge what your emotions are, you can come back to those five and just ask yourself in a quiet moment, what am I feeling? And right, this is not rocket science and it doesn't take very long, but it does take getting still and quiet. And so there are Buddhist monks like uh, not Han and others who recommend let those emotions settle. Just notice what they are and and let them settle. And often they will shift, and one will kind of turn into the next. And before you know it, you're feeling something else. But my work with people, real people in real organizations, over the last 20 years has taught me. If there's one thing it's taught me, it's that that doesn't always work. Hmm. And so my advice when you notice what you're feeling and it's not shifting into something else, not settling, then. My advice is ask what those emotions might be trying to tell you. What's the message? So I can tell you some classic messages that our emotions are trying to send us, right? Anger typically says something's not fair here. Something's not right. There's something unjust. Yeah. Right? Sadness says there's a loss here. Fear says there's danger ahead, real or imagined, right? So just being able to hear those messages can be super helpful. But then the next step is the most important one, which is to be able to not only hear the message, but to take constructive action based on it. So if you think about the civil rights leaders, the greatest civil rights leaders that are you know, in history books, Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and um, Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, they felt their anger and their anger helped them. It was a catalyst for change. They used that anger and took constructive action based on it to right the wrongs that they noticed in society. So 
that's why it can be it's it's advisable not to try to quash those emotions and make them go away but instead to acknowledge them and then ask yourself how can i use this as a catalyst for constructive change in the situation that i'm in when when we feel these emotions you know you alluded earlier to the idea that there's some things that we can do when we are quote unquote triggered and i would imagine most of the time triggered means probably anger and different personalities are more conflict avoidant than others but what, what can we do? What's a universal tool that we can use when conflict arises in the moment? What should we do? So there are two types of pauses that I recommend. Mm -hmm. I call them a reactive pause and a proactive pause. And I'll talk about the reactive one first. So a reactive pause is in the moment when you notice that you're triggered. And of course, I'll talk about why a proactive pause is so important because the problem is if you don't notice you're triggered, there's not much you can do about it. So the key is being able to slow down enough to notice that you're triggered and, and take a time out. So if you're in a conversation with a friend or a loved one, someone who you trust, and it's an appropriate relationship where you could say, hold on a minute here, I am so angry or I am so triggered right now, I need to take a time out. If you're in a relationship or in a conversation that's part of a relationship where that's not comfortable, so you're talking to the head of your, you're the CEO of a company and you're talking to the head of your board, and it doesn't make sense for you to say, hey, hold on a minute, I need to take a break, although it's arguable that you probably could figure out a way to do that if you had to. But if you feel that you can't, you can take an internal break or pause inside of your own mind, right? So breathe, count, whatever it is that you can do to help calm yourself down in that moment. But the reason why a proactive pause is so important is because it is virtually impossible. Hmm. It is virtually impossible to take a reactive pause when you don't already have practice taking proactive pauses. Hmm. And a proactive pause duration is much less important than frequency. So frequency of practice means a lot more than duration. So what does that mean? That means if you can sit on your commuter train and take 30 seconds or even you know five seconds to look up from your screen or whatever you're doing on your phone and look out the window and take a breath in and take a breath out and ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? And just to be able to sit with that, whatever the answer is, that's a great way to do a proactive pause. And just accept it. Accept that that feeling is there and don't try yeah. to control yourself or change it, but just right. accept it. And I recognize that this can, again, be very scary. If we care about our relationships with other people, if we want to be able to free ourselves from the conflict that's holding us back from living our best lives and achieving the goals that we've set for ourselves and for our organizations and for our families, then it's required to actually sit with that loss, that pain, that sadness, that frustration, and know that it will pass. So I am not at all suggesting that this is something that's easy for people to do, but I am suggesting that it's worth trying. It's worth experimenting with these things. And there's a lot more in the book about how to do these things so that you don't feel so alone when you're doing them. And so you don't get freaked out if the answer is, you know, I'm freaked out. Well, Dr. Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler, uh, the book is wonderful, Optimal Outcomes. Uh, I can't think of very many people who are doing more important work than you are right now. And uh, I'm grateful for uh, not only what you're doing on an epic level, but also just on a practical level for us as we run our businesses. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Don, for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
JJ, while the listeners were listening to that interview, you and I were able to map out <laughs> the conflict that we experienced uh-huh. earlier. I was able to take a breath, yes. sigh, mm-hmm. and I, I'm happy to report to everybody that we are probably going to be okay. Yeah. And I can affirm that. Yeah, I can. I can at least mildly agree with that affirmation. And I, you know, I would say I, I also mildly <laughs> agree. Not, uh-huh. not fully yet. No, not yeah. fully. Probably a little less. Maybe agree than you do. I think you agree more. I don't know. I don't agree more. I agree less than I'm you. Breathing do. and I'm chewing my breathing. I think that my agreement is fine where it's at. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to the Building a Story podcast. Building a Story, Billy a Story podcast. brand podcast where we. Weave believe we believe if you confuse you lose That's noise my, is the enemy i'm the one creating doing a that. clear message you didn't even mention the best guys who sing on the to podcast grow your business you You're can listen to this, this week's music absolutely by blowing Andrew it Bell on spotify <laughs> or apple music thanks for listening everybody <laughs> jj and i will figure this out we hope to be back next week with my new co-host kula callahan <laughs> <laughs>